Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, this morning, church, this is the time in our service where we dismiss our children who are third grade and under. If you would like them to go down the hall for their class, Miss Jennifer's in the back of the room and the Blue Redeemer kids shirt on. They can follow her down the hall there uh, as she prepares the, uh, has prepared the lesson for them as we enter into a time of our sermon here in the worship center. And so uh, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you've joined us this morning, whether you're here in person or you're tuned in online uh, through the live stream. We're glad that you're here with us uh, in, uh, as we enter into this new year together. Um, uh, if you are a guest with us and would like some information about our church, you can find a guest card. There's probably one around you somewhere where you are seated. If you fill out the side of that and drop that in the box at the kiosk in the back of the room on your way out today, we'd love to connect with you, answer any questions you may have about our church. You can also do that online, the homepage of our website. Uh, you can find that same information there. There's also a place on that guest card uh, both digitally and in person physically for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, then it'd be our honor and joy to do that so that you don't have to bear your burdens alone. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 as we resume our series of messages entitled Foundations, Gaining Clarity in an Age of Confusion. We started that series last fall, working our way through the book of Genesis, uh, the first, really, first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, and we reached chapter 5 last fall, took a break for Advent, and now we're back in it here after the first of the year. But just to remind you, real briefly, recap where we've been so far. The book of Genesis begins with God breathing life into the world, speaking life into the world, forming everything out of nothing. And then taking the dust of the ground that he had formed and forming out of it human beings. And then from the rib of the man that he forms, he forms the woman. And he makes humanity in his image. And we spent a lot of time on that, unpacking what it means for us to be image bearers of God. And we said essentially it means that we are to be glory reflectors. That we reflect back to God and out into the world his own glory as those made in his image. However, in Genesis chapter 3, we saw how sin entered the world and our first parents are tempted. They fall into sin and on the heels of that, we see how everything begins to unravel. In Genesis 4, Cain rises up against his brother Abel and slays him in cold blood. And then how sin multiplies through Cain's line and reaches a tipping point. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we see how Adam and Eve have had another son. They name him Seth. And Seth's line, in contrast to Cain's line, is a godly line that walks with God. We see Enoch is in a part of Seth's line. He walks with God and then he was no more because God took him. Right? And so you see this contrast between the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. However, by the time we open Genesis 6... 
right, even on the heels of reading about Seth's godly lineage in Genesis chapter 5, we see that culture has taken a hard left turn. And I don't mean that politically, okay, but it's taken a hard left turn. And so as we read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 9 this morning, I want us to read it in the context of everything that we've seen so far in our study through the book of Genesis. And so if you've got a Bible in front of you, we'll read Genesis 6, 1 to 9. If it's not in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there. Genesis 6, chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 1 begins this way. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This is God's word. You know, church, the self-help industry in America is a multi-billion dollar industry. In fact, it's estimated that in 2022, the self-help industry had profits totaling north of 13 billion. That is billion with a B dollars, right? It fills bookstores and conference centers. It's made media celebrities out of the personalities behind these books and conferences. And it's capitalized widely off of a growing self-consciousness of feeling like there's something missing in me that's developed in recent generations. And yet the self-help industry is filled with some apparent contradictions. And those are exposed by a guy by the name of Mark Manson. And he writes about them in an article that I read earlier this week. He writes about the contradictions inherent within the self-help industry. And this is what he says. He says, the contradiction of self-help is that the first and most fundamental step to growth is to admit that you're okay as you are. And that you don't necessarily need anyone else's help. It's the prime belief, and by its very definition, it's something that can't be given to you by someone else. It must be reached on your own. The irony, he says, is that once you do accept that you don't need someone else's help or advice to become a good person, it's only then that their advice truly becomes useful to you. He says, so in a way, self-help is most useful for people who don't actually need self-help. It's for the okay to great people, not the bad to okay people. 
He says, so what's the point of all of this? And he says, it's this. It's to figure it out for yourself. He says, that may sound like an obvious cop-out, but seriously, why would anyone else have the answers to your life but you? And yet, church, if we understand what the Bible teaches, listen, we must come to the conclusion that humanity, including you and I, are beyond self-help. We're beyond being able to figure it out for ourselves. In fact, we need something external to us. We need someone apart from ourselves to help us, to intervene. Something that we can't naturally conceive of on our own or for ourselves. We can't naturally find within our wills. We need something other than the power of positive thinking to intervene in and intervene. Now this sounds like heresy in modern America, that you would need someone or something other than yourself, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, figure it out for yourself, right? Look deep within and determine who you want to be and then live that out. That is heresy in nine this morning. I think we see that we've come, we've come along with the generation of Noah to a place where we are beyond self-help. Where we are beyond figuring out life for ourselves. And because that sounds so heretical to our modern ears. This morning as we look at this passage together. I want us to understand why we need something or someone external to ourselves. What is it that we need from this person? And what effect then does that have? So that's what we're going to see in Genesis 6 this morning. What do we need that comes not from ourselves, but externally from someone else? What is it that we need? And then what effect does it have? So first and foremost, why do we need something that we can't find within ourselves? And there's two reasons in this text I want to show to you this morning. And the first one is this. It is the, what I would call the demonization of culture. The demonization of culture. Now, that sounds really heavy, and it is. Look, in verse 4 of, of the first four, I'm sorry, first four verses of Genesis 6 are potentially, in the opinion of many scholars or interpreters, some of the most difficult verses in the Bible to handle. Uh, because there are some expressions there and some things discussed there which seem really whacked out. Okay? And so they would say possibly in the entire Bible, these are some of the most difficult verses. Because what we have here is a description of life beginning to multiply on earth. As humanity is beginning to fulfill the creation mandate of filling the earth. And so God had commanded our first parents to do that very thing. And that's what humanity has begun to do. They're filling the earth and daughters quickly become born to them. As they're multiplying and procreating. However, we see that very quickly as life multiplies on the face of the earth. And culture begins to grow. Those cultures are quickly infected with sin and evil. Now, there have been many proposals over the years regarding the identity of the sons of God in, verse, uh, in these particular verses. But let me, give you, let me give you two of them and then give you the one that I hold. 
right? I'll give you two. The first one I don't hold, the second one I do, and let me tell you why. There's been multiple views, but one, of, one view understands the sons of God as the godly offspring of the line of Seth and the daughters of men as the ungodly offspring of the descendants of Cain. Okay, so these are just human beings, individuals, that the sons of Seth saw the really attractive daughters of Cain, and so they married into those families, and the daughters of Cain, right, uh, 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 caused the the sons of Seth to uh, go wayward. But there's a second view, and it's an older view than that one of seeing these as just merely human beings, and this second view understands the sons of God as fallen angels, or demons to be more explicit. And there are several reasons why, this is the view that I hold, why I believe that we ought to understand the sons of God as fallen angels. First, the Old Testament most frequently uses this term sons of God to describe angelic beings. The book of Job, which most scholars believe to be the oldest literature in the Bible, they would agree, or, or that in the book of Job, that, that term is used exclusively to refer to angels. In chapter 2, verse 1, when the sons of God come with Satan before God, to be, so God can look upon what they have done. Or in chapter 38, verse 6, where Job is uh, being rebuked by God, and God's speaking to him about how God has created everything under the, under the sun. And he says this, On what were earth's bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstones? Sons of God shouted, for joy. All the angelic beings shouted for joy whenever God made the world, these sons of God. Furthermore, the New Testament refers to these angelic beings in a couple of places, in 2 Peter chapter 4 and in Jude 6, referring back to the days of Noah, whenever those spirits did not stay within their proper realm or in their proper place, but stepped outside of it. In addition, furthermore, as one commentator writes, the story we read in Genesis 6 describes these sons of God as a lusty, powerful, striving lot as they pursue fame and fertility. Now, the only way they can pursue this as angelic beings, right, as demons, is to commandeer human bodies and possess them for their own purposes. And you see in the New Testament, right, that Demons did that very thing. They commandeered human bodies and possessed them for their own ends and purposes. And Jesus seems to indicate in Luke chapter 20 that angels are sexless beings, not male nor female. And therefore they don't marry and they cannot procreate. And so what I believe we have going on here in Genesis chapter 6 is this. Is demons possessing the bodies of human men... To fulfill their own lust and satisfy their own desires. So when he refers to the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, I believe it's these angelic fallen angels, these demons commandeering the bodies of men to fulfill their purposes and carry out and gratify their desires with the beautiful, attractive daughters of men. So, that's a... I took a little work, okay? Catch our breath. Now, what commentators have long seen is that the wording of Genesis 6-2, it parallels the fall of Eve in the garden. 
Because back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and she took it and she ate it. But here in Genesis 6, these demonized right, men replay the fall, but the object of their lust is not the fruit, but it is the bodies of beautiful women that the sons of God saw and took for themselves. And one commentator, Kent Hughes, said it this way, the picture is one of unmitigated lust. What would give a fallen spirit more pleasure than having sex through the body of a, of a, of a demonized human body? Perhaps only this, taking the whole thing to the lowest levels of perversion. And he asked the question, I wonder if we have here the demonic beginnings of harems. Of harems. Now the second thing that we see in these opening verses with regards to the demonization of culture is this. is the introduction of the Nephilim. In verse 4, we're told that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the demons possessed men, united themselves in marital and sexual union with the daughters of men and bore children to them. Now, it would seem that the Nephilim are these giants, as some of your translations may say, but literally in the Hebrew, it is the fallen ones, that they are the offspring of the previously mentioned demonic marriages. They were on the earth in those days, though they were wiped out by the flood. But we're told in Numbers chapter 13 that they were indeed afterwards there as well. In other words, the same kinds of people are around post-flood as we're around pre-flood. And the Nephilim are described here as mighty men of old, men of renown. And these are terms which speak of their conquest or their power or their might or their fame that has spread across the land. In other words, their victories and their power were the stuff of legends. Stories were written. Tales were told. Epics were crafted about what they achieved. And scholars conclude from these descriptors, nearly every scholar that I read conclude from these descriptors that the Nephilim were not good dudes. Okay? Violent and bloodthirsty. And so here's the picture in the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. As culture is being formed, humanity is multiplying on the face of the earth. Is that it's a culture that's being formed. It's a culture of demonization. And it sh- the, the demonization of culture shows itself in two ways in these verses. Through sex and violence. Through sex and violence. Now, I shouldn't have to push very hard in our modern context to make a bridge to show you that this did not end when the waters rose and the ark was built. Because we're living in a day today, and it has continued through every generation, in which the influence of evil in the world The influence of demonic forces and presence in the world continues to manifest itself through sex and violence. Turn on the evening news and you will see it play out before your eyes. We live in a world in a world that glorifies sex and glorifies violence. And even in a world that sees where, the, where sexual appetites may be abhorrent at times and violent appetites may be abhorrent at times and ought to be rejected, right? 
there are still people who are proposing solutions to help those who have these abhorrent sexual desires or abhorrent desires for violence, ways to gratify those desires without hurting other human beings. I listened to a podcast earlier this week, and they were, they were sharing about the, the, the future of technological development. And you are, you are foolish to think that right, the Terminator is too far away. All right, it's somewhere out there in the future, right? It is getting closer and closer every day. And we've seen how that story ends. And it doesn't end well for us, right? But listen, AI, AI has been perhaps the, one of the fastest growing industries uh, it, it globally over the course of the last 10 years, right? Right now, there are AI devices in your pockets and purses that are listening to every word of my sermon, Okay. Right Earlier this week, I had a conversation with some staff members, and we were talking about particular baby items that they had purchased for their child. And one of the staff members had that baby item. The other staff member hadn't purchased baby items in years, and yet on their Amazon feed pops up the very baby item they were talking about with the other staff member. Right? That is creepy. But, but listen, as AIs advance, robotics has advanced as well. And the uses of robotics have also been debated in, the, in, in, in like the moral sense. What can robots do and what ought robots not do? And there are some who are proposing that in order to satisfy the abhorrent sexual and violent desires of men and women, that for those who are attracted to children, that they ought create ro- robotic children for men and women to exercise their abhorrent sexual desires on so they don't hurt children. And there are those who believe that they ought to create even physical, like, Uh, representations of spouses for those who want to abuse their spouses in violence so that the man would no longer raise his hand to his wife but raise it to the robot. That he could abuse the robot as much as he would like. Now, I'm not saying here this morning that these robots have rights. That's not the whole point of this, right? The point of it is this, is that we live in a culture that rather than saying deny those desires, says let's give you an appropriate way to express those desires without recognizing that the expression of those desires for sex and violence, listen, they will not stop with the robot because eventually the robot will get old and they'll want real flesh. That's the demonization of culture. That is the influence of evil, evil forces and evil spirits bringing that to pass. You see it in Genesis chapter 6 and you see it in the world in which we live today. That's one reason why we need help from outside of ourselves. Second reason why we need help from outside of ourselves is in the text as well. Listen, listen in the, I would call it this, the formation of evil. The formation of evil. In verse 5, we're told that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. Now, that word, every intention, is literally in the Hebrew this. Every, it means every forming 
And that word shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the forming that takes place whenever an artisan puts his hands to his medium to craft or create something. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, whenever God forms the man from the dust of the earth, same word being used. He puts his hand to the medium to form and craft it. Or in Isaiah chapter 29, where Isaiah speaks of the potter who has right over the vessels that he's creating because he is the one who has formed them. Right? It's a term used in art, artisan work. Listen, I, I'm not an artist, nor the son of one, but I have a brother who is one, okay? Uh, a brother who went to school for design and art. A brother who, in school, began to do some ceramic work, okay? And I can remember whenever he began to do ceramics in the ceramics uh, class that he took, okay? So the, 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 they would take the, the clay, and they would, they, would, they would mix it up, and they would put it on what they, you know, what's called a potter's wheel, and they would throw the clay. They wouldn't take it and like, it's not a clay fight, like a snowball fight, right? But they would throw it. They would spin it around on this wheel and take their hands and intentionally form the clay into the desired shape of the vessel they were trying to produce. Now, some of his early work, all right, was, was rough. But some of his later work was beautiful as he learned the art of forming that clay into the desired shape and function. That's the word that's used here in the text. And it's, what it's saying is this, is that every forming of the human heart, we're told, was only evil continually. So these were not mistakes or accidents, but they were planned and purposed actions as the human heart formed evil only continually. And that repetition of those words leaves nothing out. It means even the reflections of fantasy, their imaginations, what they conceived of in their mind. Whenever they daydreamed, right? Whenever they were not working or were not cooking or were not reading. When they daydreamed, it was the entertaining thoughts of evil. And the rising, as one commentator said, and freely formed movements of the will. In other words, the instinctual things that just rise up within our heart. It was forming and formed by evil. And this depravity that existed was not a temporary state. There was no relenting from it. There was no repentance or turning away from it. There was no hesitation. Lust, he's was their medium, violence their method, and it was a total, deep-rooted, and chronic depravity. Unless we think that died with the flood as well. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, when the Apostle Paul writes these words, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He's already been arguing about the Gentiles and the way that they have lived. And he says this, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
their mouths is full of curse and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then in verse 18, the capstone of all of this, he says, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. He describes the human condition once again. Post-flood, post-cross, saying every thought and intention of the human heart is formed purposefully evil. Listen, there is a circular relationship that exists here. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. Here's what happens. The human heart begins forming evil on the potter's wheel. As it conceives of evil things to be done, evil actions to be perpetrated, it forms evil in the heart. And then that evil that is formed by the human heart begins to form and shape the culture. Because as you have multiple human beings who are forming evil in their hearts, that's moving forward into the public spheres and spaces of life, then the culture is being formed by evil. And the more the culture is formed by evil, then it has that circuit, it comes back to the beginning. It forms more evil in the human heart. Because when some of us look at it and go, how do you ever get to a point where you're suggesting making a robot child to molest? It's because human was evil was formed in the human heart, that evil formed the culture, and the culture continued to form the heart. And it happens throughout generation to generation to generation. We need something outside of ourselves. We don't have it within us. Because all this, in all this formation... And all this demonization, listen, it produces something. It produces grief and judgment. In verses 6 to 7, we're told that the covenant God, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, regretted that he had made man. It grieved him to his heart and that he was sorry that he had made them. See, his response and then he, that's his response, and he announces that he will blot out man whom he has made from the face of the earth, along with the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heavens. He's going to wipe it all out. And this is in stark contrast to Genesis chapter 1. When you look back in Genesis 1, we see that when God sees all that he has made, what did he declare it to be? And behold, it is very good. Now, whenever God looks down upon all that he has made and he sees the way the culture has been demonized and the way evil has formed itself in the human heart and in the culture of, that mankind had created, his heart is broken and he's determined to wipe out all that he's made. In Genesis 1, he sees all that he's made is very good. In Genesis 6, he sees all that he's made and it's very bad. But notice God is not an arbitrary God. He doesn't determine to do this when he's unaware of the situation. He's not just sitting up in heaven. But he sees what's going on. God's not like the, he's not like the parent of more than one child. Hmm. Whenever you walk into the room and there's marker all over the wall. And there's food all over the floor. Right? 
And the, the pet is like bound in shackles in the corner. <laughs> and you walk into the room and you say, who was responsible for this? Because the parent wasn't in the room to see. Who did it? And the kids say, I don't know. And so the parent says, what? All of you are going to get it if nobody's responsible, right? That's not how God operates. He doesn't roll like that. Rather, God sees everything that is happening. He's aware of everything that everyone is doing. He sees who drew on the wall with the marker. He sees who scattered the food all over the floor. He sees who tied up the dog in the corner. He sees all of that. And then he responds as only a righteous and just and holy God should. He's grieved by what he sees, panged by what he sees. And he says, this can't continue. It can't go on this way. And so he determines to bring judgment, which we'll read about next week as we read about the flood. But what God sees, it grieves his heart. And the place where our wickedness is formed, he sees our hearts and how we're forming wickedness and evil. And it fills him with grief. See, even before the cross... When God would, in the person of Jesus Christ, He would experience in a human body, He would experience physical suffering, physical pain, physical sorrow, physical emotional grief through a human body that Jesus Christ is clothed with even before the cross when God sees the sin of man, His heart is filled with sorrow. And it's filled with grief. So we need something external. We don't have it in us. So what do we need? And the answer is in verse 8. And it's this, is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. In a dark, demonized culture formed by the evil thoughts and intentions of men's hearts... Listen, grace shines like a diamond. Now, amen. <laughs> now, those of us who remember what it was like to go shopping for an engagement ring, okay? You go into a jewelry store and you walk in and there's display cases all over. All right, and they've got the, the, the little diamonds that you can afford whenever you're in college. Right? And then they got the big diamonds that you can afford, probably still not yet, okay, uh, for most of us in the room. Right? But they got all sorts and shapes and sizes of diamonds. But every single diamond, what do they do? They put it up against a black velvet backdrop. Why? Because as the light shines into that diamond, it bursts forth off all the facets of that diamond against that black backdrop. And I tell you what, church, the backdrop of sin in this passage in verses 1 to 7 provides the, 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 the backdrop for the grace of God here to shine brilliantly, brilliantly like a diamond. Because in verse 
8, we read these words. The first word of verse 8 is a conjunction. It's the word but. And listen, as is so often with God in the Bible, there is a but. All right? Only one T, but there is a but. Right? There's a contrast here between all the sin and judgment that God has pronounced, and yet God would still be gracious. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor, it literally means grace. God's kindness. God was kind to Noah. He was gracious to Noah. He bestowed favor upon Noah. Now it's important for us to see at this point that Noah did not earn the favor of God. He did not deserve the kindness of God. He did not merit the grace of God because Noah didn't figure it out for himself. He didn't look inside of himself. He didn't trust in self-help. Rather, Noah was responding to the grace of God. And in the same way, listen, that evil has this circular pattern in our lives, so grace does as well. Right? As, as evil is formed by the human heart and forms culture and then men are formed by that culture, so also a heart that has been affected and acted upon by something outside of it, grace coming to you begins to form the human heart and those hearts that have been formed by grace begin to form a counterculture and that counterculture then begins to form the hearts of men. The same circular pattern exists. It existed in Noah's life, and it had profound impact. Because if you read on in verse 9, and here's where we're going to land the plane this morning with some application. So you'd be like, man, what do I do with all this? Here's what you do with all this. All right? Let's try to get real practical and real tangible. Because when you are acted upon by grace, something outside of ourselves, and it begins to form us as it did Noah, then we come to reflect God's righteousness. Look at what Noah was called in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. Now, don't get the order mixed up. Grace comes in verse 8. Righteousness comes in verse 9. It's not righteousness comes in verse 8, and then God says, oh, well, I will be kind to Noah because he's such a good dude. Right? Grace comes first, produces righteousness in Noah's life, and then you see two ways that that righteousness is manifested or it's shown in his life. And let me give them to you, and here's where we're going to get practical. The first one is this, is that Noah is described as one who is blameless in his generation. And listen, I want to make an appeal to us this morning that we would be known as people in the midst of a demonized and evil-formed culture as those who are blameless in our generation. That word blameless literally means complete. In other words, there was a completeness to Noah's life. He wasn't lacking his, in his pursuit of righteousness in any category. Right? There wasn't any glaring oversights for him. He wasn't a perfect man. right? But in every categorical aspect of his life he was pursuing righteousness and he was known by his contemporaries as one who was blameless he obeyed God's voice and there was 
No one like him in his generation. I wonder, church, if that could be said about us. I wonder if that could be said about me. Students, I wonder if that could be said about you in your schools. Is there a blamelessness about you? Is there a pursuit of righteousness in your life? Listen, I know all of us in this room, we're pursuing lots of things. Right? We talked about some of them last week as we're pursuing health or we're pursuing right, changing ways that we use our finances and our wealth or we're, we're pursuing right, physical appearance or we're pursuing what's the highest pursuit of your life? What are you giving yourself to? So that whenever you walk, students, when you walk onto the campus of your school, and you walk through those doors. Are there people who look at you and say, he is blameless. Or she is blameless. Or are you pursuing righteousness with your mind? With the things that you're thinking about? With what you're filling your mind with to think about? Are you filling your mind with God's word that you're meditating on and reflecting on and that's coming out in your life as you pursue righteousness? Are you filling your mind with trivial things from social media, from YouTube videos that you watch endlessly, right? from Instagram posts as you're comparing yourself and the way you look to the way that these other people look who have been doctored up by filters or perhaps by surgeons, okay, or by injections. And you compare, and so the highest pursuit of your life is this reflection of this body image rather than pursuing righteousness and holiness with your life. Are you known in your generation as one who is blameless? That would be my desire for you. That would be God's desire for you. His heart for you. That you would not be led down the path of the sexualization and the violence within our culture that is all being propagated by evil, by demons. Some of you think I've lost my mind talking about demons as much as I am, but they are real, active, and present within our culture. You can see it easily whenever you travel to other cultures, but you can't see it as easily here because it's like the water that you've always swim in as a fish. And you just see, it's just, it's just what it is to you. But are you blameless, pursuing righteousness, Second of all, Noah, we're told, walked with God. That he walked with God. Like Enoch in chapter 5, who walked with God and was no more. Listen, adults. Talk to the students for a bit here already, but listen, adults. Noah possessed what the old saints would have described as communion with God, fellowship with God, that he walked with God as a response to God's kindness and grace in his life. I was talking with another brother earlier this week, and he said, you know, we were at, he, he asked me how he could pray for me. I asked him how I could pray for him. 
And, I, and both of them, listen, they were right along these lines of having communion with God. He said, how can I pray for you? I said, you can pray that in 2022, or not 20, it's not 2022 anymore, 2023, right, that I would deepen my prayer life. That for 25 years in ministry, I have been more a man of the word than I have been a man of prayer. But I've seen some things recently that reminded me that there are some things that only happen by prayer. By petitioning God to show up and to answer, to move and to act and to work. So would you pray for me that this year I would grow in my prayer life? And I said, how can I pray for you? And he said, would you pray for me? That this year I would move beyond just this attitude of gratitude for the grace of God at the cross. And I would begin in my, all my life to have communion with Him and worship Him and give Him glory and honor in everything that I do. See, that's communion with God. Enjoying fellowship with Him. In adults, I wonder... I wonder in a world, in a world in which the culture has been formed by the evil intentions of the human heart and the demonization of sexuality and violence, how many of us would fit the descriptor? Would they say, Shannon walked with God? Would they say, Keith? Walked with God. Well, they say Stanley walked with God. And I'm only using names that I know very well and deeply. I'm not just going to start calling random names in the congregation. (laughs) But would they say, these men, these women walked with God. They enjoyed communion with Him. They were men and women of prayer. They were men and women of worship. There are men and women of service. They consecrated their life to God. They did not allow the busyness of life to crowd out their communion with Him. But they carved out time explicitly to spend with Him in prayer and in the Word. As they walked with Him. Listen, students, this... So applicable to you because you want to know how you become one who is blameless among your generation. You walk with God. You walk with Him. You fill your mind with truth. You petition Him in prayer. God, would you take the truths that I read in this book and would you make them real in my life? So that my life isn't being shaped by the trivial patterns of online videos. My life is being shaped by eternal realities. God gives greater grace. In the face of deplorable depravity. 
He has given it to us, church, in the same way that he gave it to Noah. Not because we earned it, but because he was kind. Because he didn't say, hey, if you will turn from sin and begin to be a good person, then I will send my son. No, he sent his son. And through the sending of his son and the shedding abroad of his kindness and love upon humanity. I were told in Romans chapter 2 that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Right? That's what draws us to God in Christ. And he's given us greater grace through his son. The question is, what will we do with it? Will we respond like Noah and be one who is righteous, who walks with God and is blameless in his generation? Or will we take it for granted? Will we take it for granted? As we close this morning, I want to pray for us that we would respond in the first way and not the second. Let's pray together. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.